Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Morrissey Movement. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss and share one aspect of fitness and one aspect of medicine. Being a general surgeon and a garage gym athlete, I have a strong passion for both of these aspects of life. So sit back and enjoy the show. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. I am in no way forming a patient-doctor relationship. While the aspects discussed in this podcast are medically accurate, you should always discuss with your doctor any questions that you may have about the content. You should always discuss with your doctor before starting any new exercise or dietary changes. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's Dr. Chris Morrissey here with another episode of the Morrissey Movement. I want to take uh, the time to thank everybody for listening. I really appreciate all of you for doing that. As of today, I have an all-time downloads of 405, which is pretty cool. I honestly thought I really wouldn't get that many listeners. And no, I personally did not download all 405 times to boost my numbers. So anyway, thank you for that. The hosting site that I use is called Captivate, and it has some pretty awesome features. One of them will let me see how you all are listening so it'll look at like if it's apple podcast versus google versus spotify versus stitcher versus other etc it'll also track devices so it'll say if it's mobile or desktop or ios and things like that Um, the other cool thing is it'll tell me the location of listeners Um, no it doesn't have your address and i can't look in your window of what you're doing but it'll tell me the state and city that you're in so I don't know who lives in or where Coldplay, Pennsylvania is, but whoever you are, you're my second highest percentage of listening, so thanks a lot to all of you, whether it's multiple people or just one, I'm not sure, but that's awesome, so thank you so much. Anyway, the topics of this week that I'm going to talk about, we're going to discuss BMI or body mass index and also Bulgarian split squats. Yeah, I'm still going with the alliteration theme. It just seems to make it easier to come up with content. So anyway, so I'm going to go over what the BMI is and actually why it kind of sucks. Um, I will also talk about the squat version of Bulgarian split squats, which is an awesome exercise, but also sucks, but it's in a good way. All right, so let's get started. So BMI, again, stands for body mass index. So as a physician, this is something that is calculated for us by simply inputting height and weight, and then there's a formula on the computer or on our phones or whatever. It'll spit out how, quote-unquote, healthy you are, and I use the term healthy loosely. Um, So I'm going to kind of go over the the history of this um, and using the uh, good old Wikipedia for this. So body mass index is a value derived from the mass or the weight and the height of a person. The BMI is defined as the body mass divided by the square of the body height and is expressed in units of kilogram per meter squared resulting from mass in kilograms and height in meters. And yes, it does get converted to inches and pounds. So, you know, for us in the United States, this is what we use. The BMI may be determined using a table or a chart, which then displays the BMI as a function of mass and height using contour lines or colors for different BMI categories and which may use other uh, units of measurements. The BMI is a conventional rule of thumb used to kind of see um, if somebody is underweight, normal weight, overweight, or obese based off of tissue mass, i.e. muscle, fat, and bone, and height. Major adult BMI classifications are underweight, which is categorized as under 18.5 kilograms per meter squared, normal weight, which is 18.5 to 24.9, overweight, which is 25 to 29.9, and obese, which is 30 or more. 
When used to predict an individual's health rather than as a statistical measurement for groups, the BMI has limitations that can make it less useful than some other alternatives, which I'll talk about also, um, which includes abdominal obesity, short stature, or unusual high muscle mass. BMIs under 20 and over 25 have been associated with higher all-cause mortality with the risk increasing with distance from the 20 to 25 range. So as far as obesity and BMI goes, um, so there's this guy named Adolf Quetelet. I'm sure I'm probably saying that wrong, a Belgian astronomer, mathematician, and statistician, and sociologist. He devised the basis of BMI somewhere around 1830 to 1850 as he developed what he called social physics, quote-unquote. The modern term body mass index for the ratio of the human body weight to squared height was coined in a paper published in July 1972 edition of Journal of Chronic Diseases by Ansel Keys and others. In this paper, Keys argued that what he termed the BMI was, if not fully satisfactory, at least as good as any other relative weight index as an indicator of relative obesity. The interest in an index that measures body fat came with observed increasing obesity in prosperous Western societies. Keyes explicitly judged BMI as appropriate for population studies and inappropriate for individual evaluation. Nevertheless, due to its simplicity, it has come to be the widely used for, pre for preliminary diagnoses. Additional metrics such as waist circumference can be more useful, which I completely agree with. Um, again, the BMI is expressed in kilometers, or I'm sorry, kilograms per meter squared. Um, if pounds and inches are used, there's a conversion factor of 703 that you apply to that. So when the term BMI is used informally, the units are usually omitted. So when you hear the numbers, we don't put the units on there. We just talk about the number, whatever you end up being. So the BMI provides a simple numeric measure of a person's thickness or thinness, allowing healthcare professionals to discuss weight problems more objectively with their patients. The BMI was designed to be used as a simple means for classifying average sedentary populations with an average body composition. For individuals, the BMI value recommendations as of 2014 are as follows. So 18 to 24.9 may indicate optimal weight. Lower than 18.5 may indicate underweight. 25.29.9 may indicate overweight. And 30 or more is usually used as obese. Lean male athletes often have a high muscle mass to fat ratio and therefore a BMI that is misleading um, high relative to their body fat percentage. In children, which they use this as people aged from 2 to 20, so I don't know, I typically don't think of children as 20-year-olds, but anyway, uh, BMI for age percentiles for boys 2 to 20 um, and girls from 2 to 20, that's what they typically use for this. So BMI is used differently in children. It's calculated in the same way for adults, but then compared to typical values for other children of the same age. So instead of comparison against fixed thresholds for underweight and overweight, the BMI is, is compared against the percentiles for children of the same sex and age. A BMI that is less than the 5th percentile is considered underweight and above the 95th percentile is considered obese. So children with a BMI between the 85th and 95th percentile are considered overweight. There's some studies from Britain from 2013 may indicate that females between the ages of 12 and 16 had a higher BMI than males of the same age by 1 kilogram per meter squared on average. As far as the United States goes, in 1998, the U.S. National Institute of Health, or the NIH, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention 
which is the CDC, brought U.S. definitions in line with the World Health Organization or the WHO by lowering the over, or I'm sorry, lowering the normal slash overweight cutoff from BMI 27.8 to the BMI of 25. This had the effect of redefining approximately 29 million Americans previously healthy to bringing them as overweight. This can partially explain the increase in the overweight diagnosis in the past 20 years and the increase in sales of weight loss products during the same time. The WHO also recommends lowering the normal uh, overweight threshold for Southeast Asian body types to around a BMI of 23 and expects further revisions to emerge from clinical studies of different body types. There's a survey done in 2007 that showed 63% of Americans were then overweight or obese, with 26% in the obese category, which is a BMI of 30 or more. By 2014, 37.7% of adults in the U.S. were obese, 35% of men, and 40.4% of women. Class 3 obesity, which is a BMI over 40, values were 7.7% for men and 9.9% for women. The United States National Health and Nutritional Examination Survey of 2015 to 16 showed that 71.6% of American men and women had BMIs over 25. Obesity, which is a BMI of over 30, was found in 39.8% of the U.S. adults. So why do we care about this? Why is this important um, as far as the consequences of having an elevated BMI in adults? Uh, so the ranges are based on the relationship between body weight and disease and death. Overweight and obese individuals are at an increased risk for the following diseases, including coronary artery disease, dyslipidemia, type 2 diabetes, gallbladder disease, hypertension, osteoarthritis, sleep apnea, stroke, infertility, at least 10 cancers, including endometrial, breast, and colon cancer, and also epidural lipomatosis. Among people who have never smoked, overweight and obesity is associated with a 51% increase in mortality compared with people who have always been a normal weight, which is sort of interesting. Relationship to health. So there was a study done in the Journal of American Medical Association, or JAMA, back in 2005 that showed that overweight people had a death rate similar to normal weight people as defined by BMI, while underweight and obese people had a higher death rate. There was a study published in The Lancet, which is another medical journal in 2009 involving 900,000 adults, showed that overweight and underweight people both had a mortality rate higher than normal weight people as defined by BMI. The optimal BMI, optimal BMI was found to be between 22.5 and 25. The average BMI of athletes is 22.4 for women and 23.6 for men. Higher BMI is associated with a few different things as well. Uh, like we talked about type 2 diabetes, only in persons with high serum gamma glutamyl transpeptidase, or GGT, which is a liver study that you can get on a, a blood draw. And an analysis of 40 studies showing approximately 250,000 people, patients with coronary artery disease with normal BMIs were at higher risk of death from cardiovascular disease than people whose BMIs put them in the overweight range. One study found that BMI had a good general correlation with body fat percentage and noted that the obesity has overtaken smoking as the world's number one cause of death. But it also notes that in the study, 50% of men and 62% of women were obese according to body fat defined obesity, while only 21% of men and 31% of women were obese according to BMI, meaning that the BMI was found to underestimate the number of obese subjects. A 2010 study showed that about 11,000 subjects for up to eight years 
conducted that BMI is not a good measure for the risk of heart attack, stroke, or death. A better measure was found of the hip-to-waist ratio, which is one that I, I like to use as well. So basically what you do is you take a tape measure and you measure around your hips and then you measure around your waist um, and that's a different way to do this as well. Um, there's a proposed new BMI that has been found. Uh, so computes the body mass index accounts for distortions of the traditional BMI formula for shorter and taller individuals. This has been proposed by a guy named Nick uh, Trefethen, which I'm sure I probably said that wrong too, which is a professor of numerical analysis at the University of Oxford. So the scaling factor was 1.3, was determined to make the proposed new BMI formula align with the traditional BMI formula for adults of average height, while the exponent of 2.5 is a compromise between the exponent of 2 in the traditional formula for BMI and the exponent of 3 would be expected for scaling of weight, which at constant density would theoretically scale with volume as uh, the cube of height um, with, with the height of the individual. However, this guy's analysis, an exponent of 2.5 is found to fit empirical data more closely with less distortion than either exponent of 2 or 3. So then you get into the argument of muscle versus fat. Assumptions about the distribution between muscle mass and fat mass are an exact BMI generally overestimates adiposity or fat content of those with more lean body mass, which is like athletes and underestimates excess adiposity on those with less lean body mass. There's a study done in June of 2008 uh, by Romero, Coral et al. examined approximately 13,600 subjects from the U.S. 3rd National Health and Nutrition Exam Survey and found that BMI defined obesity greater than 30 was present in 21% of men and 31% of women. Body fat defined obesity was found in 50% men and 62% women, while BMI defined obesity showed high specificity, which is 95% for men and 99% for women, and the BMI showed poor sensitivity, and it only showed a 36% for men and 49% for women. So in other words, the BMI will be mostly correct when determining a person to be obese, but can err quite frequently when determining a person not to be obese. Despite this undercounting of obesity by the BMI, it values in the intermediate BMI range of 20 to 30 were found to be associated with a wide range of body fat percentages. For women with a BMI, I'm sorry, for men with a BMI of around 25, about 20% have a body fat percentage below 20%, and 10% have body fat percentage above 30%. So that's a lot of percentages, but so it's basically saying that people. Um, that 20% of people have a body fat percentage lower than 20% body fat. So that is, you know, can be taken with skin full calibers and other ways that we'll talk about here in a little bit. Body comp for athletes is often better calculated using measures of body fat determined by techniques as skin fold calipers, which I just said, or underwater weighing and the limitations of manual measurements have also led to new alternative methods to measure obesity, such as body volume indicator. And I, towards the end of this talk, I will discuss all the different ways to do this. So, um, uh, so a couple other ways you can talk about, again, waist circumference. This is a good indicator of visceral fat, which visceral fat means the fat around your organs, which poses more health risks than fat elsewhere. According to the U.S. National Institute of Health, waist circumference in excess of 40 inches for men and 35 inches for non-pregnant women is considered to imply a high risk for type 2 diabetes, dyslipidemia, hypertension, which is high blood pressure, and also uh, 
cerebrovascular disease. Weight, I'm sorry, waist circumference can be a better indicator of obesity-related risk than BMI. So for example, this is the case in populations of Asian descent and older people, 37 inches for men and 31 inches for women has been stated to pose higher risk with the NIH figures even higher. The waist to hip circumference ratio has also been used but has been found to be no better than waist circumference alone and more complicated to measure. So the waist to hip, again, you kind of measure close to where your belly button is and then you kind of measure where the top of your hip bones or your iliac crests are and um, you see what that ratio is. Uh, a related indicator is waist circumference divided by height, which I alluded to a little bit earlier. So the values indicating increased risk are greater than 0.5 for people under 40 years of age, 0.5 to 0.6 for people aged 40 to 50, and then greater than 0.6 for people over the age of 50. There's another thing, uh, surface-based body shape index, or the SBSI. It's far more rigorous and is based upon four key measurements. So the body surface area, vertical trunk circumference, waist circumference, and height. So there's data that was looked at on 11,808 subjects from the National Health and Human Nutrition uh, Examination Surveys between 1999 and 2004 showed that the SBSI outperformed the BMI, waist circumference, and body shape index as alternative to BMI. So a simplified dimensionless form of SBSI, also known, um, has been developed. So they have something called a modified body mass index. So within some medical texts, such as, or I'm sorry, medical contexts, such as familial amyloid polyneuropathy, serum albumin is considered or factored in to produce a modified body mass index. So this can be obtained by multiplying the BMI by the serum albumin in grams per liter. So you have to get a blood test to measure the level of albumin in your blood, which is the basic protein floating around and can be used. I've never used that, so I'm not really 100% of what that's all about. But So as for me, um, I am considered overweight, and I know no one's probably never seen me other than people that know me in person. Uh, based off my height and weight, which I am 5 foot 8, and weigh around 180 to 184 pounds any given day. My BMI is calculated as 27.98, and my new BMI, uh, the one that they suggested um, via that guy from Oxford, is 27.67, so really not much of a difference. Do I feel like I'm overweight? Hell no, I don't really feel like I'm overweight. I work out five to six days a week. I run between 10 to 15 miles per week. Uh, do I have a six-pack? No, I don't. Um, I eat primarily a paleo style diet. I don't drink or smoke. I don't drink any soda or pop. Um, so based off popular modern medicine, my healthy weight based off the BMI charts would be 123 to 166 pounds. So if I weighed into that range, I feel I would look fairly anorexic. It would most likely have no energy and just feel like complete dog crap. So we kind of really need to come up with something better to analyze our body composition. So I did some research and I found, according to Medline, there's a 10 better ways to measure your body composition. And I'll go through a few of these here, actually all 10 of these in mild detail. So first one that was mentioned is skin fold calipers, which again, I kind of alluded to earlier. So um, it's been used to estimate body fat for over 50 years. Skin fold calipers, they measure the thickness of your subcutaneous fat, which is the fat underneath your skin at different body locations. Uh, so basically you use these little kind of tong looking things and you take 
measurements at either three or seven different sites on your body depending on the charts that you use and they kind of vary between men and women so for women you do the tricep area the above the hip bone area and either the thigh or the abdomen are used for the three site measurements for the seven site measurement in women you do the chest the area near the armpit and area between the shoulder blade are also measured for men the three sites are the chest the abdomen and the thigh or the chest triceps and area beneath your shoulder blade or your scapula the seven site measurement area or thing in men um, you use the area near the armpit and then beneath the shoulder blade as well so the advantages of this type um, they're very affordable you can get them on amazon fairly cheap and you can be taken very quickly you can do it at home but it's also portable if why you would want to take this with you i don't know but you could disadvantages the method requires practice and basic anatomy knowledge also some people just don't enjoy getting their fat pinch so you may not like this as far as availability again they're very affordable easy to get on amazon i have purchase one for probably I don't know 10 or 15 bucks and it does come with a book with a chart so you can actually use the measurements that you get the accuracy again it's the skill of the person doing it and it can vary impacting the accuracy so measurement errors can range from 3.5 to 5 percent body fat so you may be more or less depending on how well you measured this so the second way you can do this is using body circumference measurements. So body shape varies from person to person, obviously, and the shape of your body provides information about your body fat. Measuring the circumference of certain body parts is a simple method of body fat um, estimation. So for example, the Army uses a body fat calculation that simply requires an individual's age, height, and a few circumference measurements. So for men, they do the circumferences of the neck and waist are used in this equation. For women, the circumference of the hip is also included so advantage fairly easy and affordable a flexible measuring tape and calculator is all you need these tools can be used at home or again are portable disadvantages body circumference equations may not be accurate for all people due to differences in shape and fat distribution availability you know you can get a flexible measuring tape anywhere walmart target whatever you want to do accuracy is kind of widely based on uh, your similarity to the people that are used to develop the equation so the error rate can be as low as 2.5 to 4 percent body fat but can also be much higher so again it's okay it kind of gives you a ballpark range but not the best so number three is something called a dual energy x-ray absorptionometry or DEXA scan so as the name implies you use x-rays um, two different types of energy to estimate your body fat percentage so during the scan you lie on your back for about 10 minutes and x-ray scans over you the amount of radiation is very low it's about the same that you receive during about three hours out in the sun in your normal life so DEXA is also used to assess bone density so you may have heard of this as well for <clears throat> especially for women looking for osteoporosis and it uh, provides details about the bone the lean mass and are and fat in separate body regions arms legs and torso so advantages this method is accurate and detailed information also includes a breakdown of different body regions and bone density readings disadvantages they're often unavailable to the general public and they're expensive when they're available and deliver a very small amount of radiation availability is typically only in medical or research settings so your doctor would have to order this for you so if you're 30 years old they most likely will probably not order that just to order it um, unless you have a reason to do so accuracy it's probably the most consistent and most accurate way out there um, that's probably the most accessible to people even though i did say it is inaccessible mostly but some of these other things are really hard to access that so the error range for this 
Uh, it's about 25 to 3.5% body fat. Another method is something called hydrostatic weighing. So this is also called underwater weighing or hydrodensitometry, which estimates your body comp on its density. Uh, this technique weighs you while submerged underwater after exhaling as much air as possible from your lungs. You are also weighed while you're on dry land and the amount of air left in your lungs after you exhale is estimated or measured. All this information is entered into equations to determine the density of your body. Your body's density is then used to predict your body fat percentage. So advantages, it's fairly quick and accurate. Dis and dis disadvantages, it's kind of difficult or impossible for some individuals to be fully submerged underwater. The method requires breathing out as much air as possible than holding your breath underwater. Availability, hydrostatic weighing is typically only available at universities, medical settings, or certain fitness facilities. Uh, accuracy, when testing is performed perfectly, the error of this device can be as low as 2% body fat. So pretty accurate. I've never done this, so I have no idea how this goes. It'd be kind of interesting to do. The fifth one mentioned is something called air displacement plethysmography or a bod pod. Some people may have heard of this before. So it's similar to hydrostatic weighing, but it's air displacement. Estimates your body fat percentage based on the density of your body. However, ADP uses air instead of water. So the relationship between the volume and pressure of air allows this device to predict the density of your body. So you sit inside this egg-shaped chamber for several minutes while the pressure of the air inside the chamber is altered. To obtain accurate measurements, you need to wear skin-tight clothing or a bathing suit during testing. Advantages, method is accurate and relatively quick and does not require going underwater. So if you want to do something like this and you're scared of going underwater, this may be better for you. Disadvantages, it's limited availability and can be quite expensive. Uh, this is typically only available at universities, medical settings, or some fitness facilities. Again, I've never done this one either. The accuracy is pretty good. Error rates between 2 to 4% body fat. So another one people may have heard of is something called BIA or bioelectrical impedance analysis. So this detects how quickly your body responds to small electrical currents. This is done by placing electrodes on your skin. Some electrodes send currents into your body and then others receive the signal after it passed through the body tissues. The electrical currents move through muscle easier than fat due to the higher water content of muscle. So this device automatically enters your body's response to electrical currents into an equation that predicts your body composition. There are many different devices out there that vary in cost, complexity, and accuracy. So advantages, it's quick and easy. Many devices can be purchased by consumers. Disadvantages, the accuracy is kind of wide and can be greatly affected by food and, and, and fluid intake. While many units are available to consumers, these are often less accurate than the expensive devices found in medical or research settings. Accuracy varies with an error rate between 3.8 and 5% of body fat. It may be higher or lower depending on which device you use. So if you find a $20 one on Amazon, it's probably not worth even checking out. So you may need to pay some larger coin to get something accurate like this. There's another one called bioimpedance spectroscopy. It's similar to the one I just mentioned above. Both methods marry the, uh, measure the body's response to occurrence. Um, the devices look similar but use different technology. So the bioimpedance spectroscopy, or BIS, uses a larger number of electrical currents in addition to higher and lower frequencies to mathematically predict your amount of body fluid. This also analyzes the, different, uh, informa or the information differently, and some researchers believe this is more accurate than the BIA or using air, or I'm sorry, the, I'm sorry, the uh, bioelectrical impedance. However, similar to BIA, this uses body fluid information to gather to predict your body comp based off equations. 
accuracy both methods depends on how similar you are to the people for whom the equations were developed so you may fit out of this category depending on your body type so again advantages quick and easy disadvantages uh, consumer grade BIS devices are not currently available so basically you have to go to a university or medical setting or some fitness facilities may have these Accuracy, this is more accurate than the consumer grade BIA devices, but have similar error rate to more advanced BIA modules, so 3 to 5% body fat. Number eight is electrical impedance myography, or EIM. This is a third method that measures your body comp using electrical currents. However, while BIA and BIS send currents through your whole body, this just sends currents through smaller regions of your body. So recently, this technology has been used in inexpensive devices that are available to consumers. These, places are, these are placed on different parts of the body to estimate the body fat of those specific areas. Because this device is placed directly on specific regions, it has some similarities to skin fold calipers, although the technology is fairly different. So advantages, again, it's quick and easy, just like everything else. Disadvantages, very little information is available about the accuracy of these devices, so more research needs to be done. Cheap devices are available to the general public. Accuracy is limited information, although one study reported 2.5 to 3% error relative to DEXA. However, probably more research needs to be done. The next one is something called a 3D body scanner. So they use infrared sensors to get detailed look at the shape of your body. So the sensors ge generate a 3D model. And then for some devices, you stand on a rotating platform for several minutes while the sensors detect your body shape. Other devices use sensors that rotate around your body. So the scanner's equations then estimate your body fat percentage based off your body shape. In this way, the 3D body scanners are similar to circumference measurements, but a greater amount of information is provided by the 3D scanner. So advantages, again, just like everything else, it's relatively quick and easy. Disadvantages, they're not commonly available, but are gaining popularity. Availability, they do have several consumer-grade devices available, but they're not as affordable as simple circumferential measurement methods like skinful calipers. Accuracy, limited information is available, but some scanners may be fairly accurate with errors around 4%. And then the last one I'll talk about, which is called the multi-compartment modules, which is considered the gold standard. Um, this is considered the most accurate method of body composition. So these models split the body into three or more parts. The most common assessments are called three-compartment and four-compartment mo models. These models require multiple tests to get estimates of body mass, body volume, and body water, and also bone content. The information is then obtained from so some other methods already discussed in this article. So, for example, hydrostatic weighing or ADP can provide body volume, BIS or BIA can provide body water, and then DEXA can measure bone content. So information from each of these methods is combined to build a more complete picture of the body and obtain the most accurate body fat percentage. Advantages, this is the most accurate method. Disadvantages, it's often unavailable to the general public and requires different assessments. So you got to do multiple tests of the ones I mentioned above, and then it'll calculate a complete measurement for you. Availability, the multi-compartment modeling is typically only available in select medical and research facilities. Accuracy, this is the best method in terms of accuracy. Error rates can be under 1%. Um, it's considered the true gold standard. So Again, most of these tests you really probably can't do. Um, if you do have the opportunity to get them done, though, and you have the money to do it, it might be fun and interesting just to see. So calibers is probably most people's best option because they're you know, cheap, but it's very user-dependent. So it's pretty tough to do it yourself because I've done this, and I don't know how accurate it is. I just kind of get a ballpark for me. Um, <clears throat> so 
Now that I've talked extensively about BMI, I'm going to kind of quickly go over the basics of the Bulgarian split squat. So this is a great exercise of variation if you're just tired of doing regular back squats or front squats, which still, in my opinion, back squats are one of the better exercises to do for overall body strength. Um, so as far as benefits of the Bulgarian squat, it's a lower body exercise. It strengthens the muscles of the legs, including the quads, which are your thigh muscles, your hamstrings, which is your, your you know, posterior or your back thigh muscles, your glutes, and your calves. Also, as a single leg exercise, your core is forced to work in overdrive to maintain your balance, so this also works your core fairly well. So you might ask, how is this different from a single leg squat? Although the Bulgarian split squat and the single leg squat focus on quads and require balance, there are some subtle differences. So single leg squat, your stabilizing leg comes out in front of you. In the Bulgarian split squat, your stabilizing leg is actually behind you and it's on an elevated surface like a bench or a box or even a yoga ball. Um, the Bulgarian split squat allows you to reach greater depth than a single leg squat requiring more flexibility of your hips. So is there different types of Bulgarian split squats? Yeah, there's two common variations. One is quad dominant and one that is gluteal dominant. So your foot position will determine this. So if your foot is further from the elevated surface, you'll place more emphasis on your glutes and hamstrings. If you're closer to the elevated surface, then you'll hit your quads more. So both variations are very beneficial. It ultimately comes down to your personal preference as to what feels more natural based off your flexibility and mobility. So you kind of want to play around with each very with each variant and to help you identify which works best for you. But as always, you need to be safe and learn how to do this appropriately. So you should probably just start off by using body weight to get used to this. So to get started, basically, again, start standing about two feet or so in front of a knee level bench or a step or a box. Then you're gonna lift your right leg up behind you and place the top of the foot on the bench. Your feet should still be about shoulder width apart and your right foot should be far enough in front of the bench where you can comfortably lunge. Hop around a bit so you can find the right spot. If a closer foot position works, just ensure that when you lower down, your left knee doesn't fall over the line of your toes. So next, while you're engaging your core, you're gonna roll your shoulders back and then slightly lean forward at the waist, beginning to lower your body, or lower your left leg, bending the knee. If completing a quad dominant Bulgarian squat, you wanna stop before your knee falls over your toes. If you're doing more of the glute dominant Bulgarian split squat, you wanna stop when your left thigh is parallel to the ground. So then you're gonna push up through your left foot using the power of your quads and hamstrings to return to standing. So then repeat the desired number of sets and reps on this leg, then switch putting the left foot up on the bench. So again, if you're completely new to this, just start doing like two sets of six to eight on each leg until you get acclimated to the movement and then you can gain some strength. When you can complete three sets of 12 on each leg comfortably, then consider adding a light dumbbell in each hand for some additional resistance. Um, and you, well, I'll talk about a couple different ways you can add weight here in just a minute. So how can you add this to your routine? Um, add a Bulgarian split squat to your routine on a lower body day to bolster leg strength or add it to a full body day to mix things up a little bit. <clears throat> so as far as a common few mistakes to look for, while this is easier to master than the traditional squat, there's a couple things to look for. So your front leg isn't in, a, isn't in a comfortable position. So if your front foot isn't positioned correctly, you'll spend a lot of time hopping around to find the sweet spot. So remember that you don't want your foot so close to the bench that your knee falls over your toes, but also you don't want it to be too far out. So once you've kind of figured out the right placement, just put a mark on the floor with either a dumbbell or a small plate or even a piece of tape if you want to for future sets. Obviously, if this is your home gym, if you're in a Globo style gym, then you can't leave those things laying there until after you're done. So 
Um, another common mistake, your torso isn't tilted. So although a common cue for strength exercise is to keep your chest up, you actually kind of want to lean forward just a little bit. You'll limit your range of motion if you stay in a completely upright position, forcing your knee to pop out before you reach optimal depth. So if you notice this happening, just bend your waist until your torso reaches about a 30 degree angle and then try again. Um, so like as far as variations go, what can you do? So like we talked about, if you can master the body weight part, try adding some resistance or other props. So what can you do? So one, you can put a barbell on your back. So just kind of like a traditional back squat, just get a, a light barbell, even a, P, a PVC pipe just to start off with, even though this is fairly light in weight, um, just to get the feel of having something on your back. Another thing you can do is you can either get a set of dumbbells or kettlebells and hold them one in each hand to add some added resistance. You can also use resistance bands by placing it under your foot and up over your shoulder to use this for some resistance. Uh, you can put on a weight vest to add more weight instead of using extra props. You can also use a, a yoga ball um, for added stability work. So, you know, not only are you trying to um, stabilize your front foot, but also your back foot will be kind of wobbling around. So with this, again, I would probably go with lighter weight until you get this mastered. So for me, I like to throw this into programming for my clients every so often. I'll usually do it for a cycle and then back off a bit, just depending on what their goals are and if they enjoy them or not. So well, anyway, that's about it for this week. So thanks again for listening. And if you can, please leave up to a five-star review. It really helps the show out to reach more listeners and it's super quick and easy. So I appreciate that. So get out there and crush the week. Get up and get moving. And remember, movement is the best medicine.